You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. Hey, good morning. My name is Dean, the pastor at City Church. It's good to gather together. Once again, I want to put on your radar one more time, one more communication for that, that vision night, March 3rd, right here in this building at 6 o'clock, a time in a different environment outside of Sunday morning to come together. We're going to worship together, hear the teaching of some scriptures together, celebrate the vision of what God's doing here, hear building updates. I get excited about Easter. You excited for Easter? Coming up really soon, as Rachel just talked about. Please be praying about that now, inviting people now. It's such an opportunity for us to take the good news of the gospel into a central place in our city and use Easter Sunday, a place in some, some, a time where some people are willing to go to church to invite them to hear the good news of Jesus' resurrection and point them to life in Christ. And we're in a series right now called Tensions. We're looking at the tensions believers feel living in a world that's not our home. There can be a rub for us a lot of times on how to live faithfully when there's so many, such much noise and so much distractions and so many things that lead us away from Jesus so regularly that we feel a tension. How do I be faithful here? We've been working through that. Talked about gender last week. One week we spent talking about self Selfish ambition versus godly ambition. We're making all kinds of friends around here. I talked about marriage. We're talking about so many different kinds of things. And this morning we're going to talk about even make more friends of the tension we feel about how to think about money. So gender and sexuality last week and money this week. I just love y'all, don't I? Uh, let's pray together and then we're going to jump into a very important topic that Jesus talks about over and over again for us. That if we're going to live faithfully in this world, we have to resolve that tension. Let's pray together. Our Father, we're grateful for your love for us, for grace for the cross of Jesus, for the resurrection. We're celebrating all the time, but especially this time of year. And we ask we'll be so convinced of your good news that we are unashamed to invite our friends, to tell them about our church, but more importantly, to tell them about your love understood in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. As we talk about money today, Lord, we're thankful that you talk about it a lot. So since you talk about it a lot, we know that we should talk about it and think about it a lot. So I ask that you search our hearts, that we will be, have open minds, open ears, open hearts, open eyes, to see, to hear, to understand your revealed truth of the scriptures. How interesting to me, it truly is, as I prepared this message this week, Father, that you talk about this topic so often. So I ask we'll be faithful in how we talk about it this morning, and we'll see how easy it is for money to master us, rather than you to be the one that we sit under in grace and in love. Lord, help us see this today. Keep the enemy out of this place. Be with all the churches in Tallahassee as they gather. Be with all of us as we prepare for Easter. I also ask you with our Good Friday service at Ruby Diamond, Lord, such opportunities you give us. We are recipients of grace over and over again as this church in Tallahassee, and I ask that we'll be found faithful of all of it. We ask it all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Tim Keller, a pastor in New York, uh, tells this story. He writes this, that some years ago, my wife Kathy noticed I was doing a series of monthly morning breakfasts on the seven deadly sins. The seven deadly sins, Keller wrote, include lust, pride, envy, anger, and so forth. And of course, one of the seven deadly sins is greed. And Kathy asked his wife, are they advertising these things? I said, yes, they're advertising. She said, so they'll know the month you're speaking on greed? They're going to know about it? I said, right, correct, she said. She said, watch the attendance is going to drop. They're not going to come out to hear about greed. And looking back on it, Keller said, and she was right. It was the least attended of all the seven deadly sins. Why? It's not that they were hostile. They didn't roll their eyes. It's not that people said this is a terrible idea. I don't want to hear about greed. That wasn't the reason he said. Everybody was just so sure it wasn't true of them. 
that it doesn't apply to me. Because no one sees themselves as greedy. In fact, no one even sees themselves as rich. There's always somebody that has a little more money than we do. Here's what Jesus said to his disciples in Mark chapter 10, verse 23. We see that Jesus looked around and said to his disciples how hard it is for those who have wealth, who have money, who have resources to enter the kingdom of God, to be a part of God's family, not just heaven when you die, but to live life with Jesus. The disciples were astonished at his words because having wealth was a, time, a way of, seeing, of being esteemed in this culture at this time. So what do you mean that they can't enter the kingdom of God? It's going to be hard for them. This sounds strange to us. Again, Jesus said to them, children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? He's driving a point home here, being repetitive. He says it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Try to imagine that than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished, saying to one another, then then who can be saved? If these people that we esteem in such high honor can't be a part of the kingdom of God, then who actually can? And looking at them, Jesus said, and this is great hope for all of us, with man it is impossible. We cannot save ourselves. We can't resolve these tensions on our own. But not with God, because all things are possible with God. That makes for a great coffee mug. But here Jesus is talking about rich men and the kingdom of God of heaven. So the passage of story, context matters here, is that the rich young ruler just had an encounter with Jesus. He comes to Jesus asking what good things he has to do to attain eternal life. And Jesus said, it's not about being good, because we believe that we can't earn our way to heaven, because no matter how many good deeds we do, we've still sinned against God, and God cannot let sin get on, go unpunished. So this discussion they're having between a very wealthy man who had lots of possessions, Jesus and this guy are going back and forth, and Mark tells us that Jesus looked at him and loved him with compassion because Jesus knew that the man was so committed to his own possessions, was so in love with his own wealth that he had no room in his actual heart or his life for the things of God. So the story actually ends badly. We read the man walks away sadly because he had great possessions and Jesus told him, because he knew, he knew his heart, he told him to go sell all of his stuff. If you sell all your stuff, then we'll talk about the things of God because I know it's the most dear thing to you is your wealth and your possessions and the guy wouldn't do it. Why? Because he had a substitute savior. A substitute savior rather than Jesus being his savior and looking to Christ Here this man looked at his wealth and his possessions, and Jesus knew he was in no way, shape, or form ready to give his life to Jesus because his life was committed to his own wealth, and there isn't room in your heart for both. So the context of the text I just read from Mark chapter 10 is what follows after the encounter with the rich young ruler. Immediately afterwards, he goes into the camel and the eye of the needle. In verse 23, when Jesus, after watching the man walk away sorrowful because he wouldn't sell his stuff to follow Christ, he looks around and says to his disciples, camel and needle. There's an old urban legend that exists on the internet and in some kind of tourist industries in Israel. This is talking about a hole in a wall in Jerusalem and that a camel would have to really kind of shrink down and go through this hole to get into the city. And that hole was called the eye of the needle. That's an urban legend, and it's not true. Jesus is really actually trying to help us see how impossible this is. And the disciples are amazed. Jesus said it's hard for those who trust in their riches to enter the kingdom of God. Here's an example of that. 
This guy said no to following Jesus, even though he was asking Christ about life, because Jesus pointed him to where his life in his eyes is actually found in his possessions, and he said, no, Jesus, I want my stuff instead. Here's how serious this is. Here's how hard, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And he uses a strange illustration when he says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. How strange that sounds. He takes the largest known animal in their town. Apparently there have been no Bigfoot sightings yet. But the largest known animal in their town and and, and in their context and compares it to the smallest hole of an opening they would know about. And says, here's how hard it is. It's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. It's so hard, think of a camel, this huge animal that all of you know about, and think about a needle. Can a camel go through the eye of a needle? And they're going, that's the strangest thing I've ever heard. No, is this a trick question? He says, that's how difficult it is. He says it's possible, it's possible through God for a rich man to be a part of the kingdom of God, but it's very difficult. What makes this hard, as Keller said with his story, that nobody thinks it applies to them because nobody thinks they are rich because there's always somebody who has more than us. See, in the Old Testament, God's judgment comes on the wealthy, but the wealthy, there's an important caveat there, who use their wealth to exploit and hurt people. And at the exact same time, some of the greatest heroes of the Bible are some of the wealthiest. They're never shamed or condemned for having means, for having resources, for having money. They actually use it for the glory of God. Abraham, one of the richest men in the world in the New Testament, or the Old Testament, excuse me. In the New Testament, we hear of a guy named Joseph of Arimathea, whose tomb was used for the burial of Jesus. He was a very wealthy man. Money isn't the problem. Don't be bitter towards those who have more than you. Don't feel ashamed or guilty if you have more than a lot of people. Money isn't the problem. It's what money can do to us that's the tension. Money is not the issue. It's what money can do to us that causes problems. Jesus says, how hard is it? I'll say it again and again because he said it so clearly. How hard is it for a person who trusts in their wealth? How difficult is it for them? Because if that's where we put our confidence and our trust, no pun intended, the trust of our heart, not our money trust, and make the most sacred in all of our lives, then we have put our trust in that which cannot redeem or save us. Only Jesus can redeem and save us, and money and possessions can function as a substitute savior that clouds our need for Christ every single day, because we're just fine on our own, we think. We don't need God. So Jesus warns very often in the scriptures against trying to serve two masters, trying to serve God, what the Bible calls mammon, trying to store up riches for ourselves in the world where thieves come in and steal, where moths come in, where rust corrodes, that is what's most precious to us. And instead he calls us to store up treasures in heaven, to see things as God's first and to invest our lives into the kingdom of God. So the question we have to ask is, where is our trust? No pun intended. And what do we do with the wealth we receive? Where is our trust, and what do we do with the wealth we receive? R.C. Sproul, whose Mark commentary uh, was very helpful in me working through this here, and some of the articles he's written about this story, so I'm referencing him a lot throughout this sermon, kind of a trusted source here along with Keller. Sproul said this, 
the fundamental premise for wealth in the Bible is this. Every good and perfect gift that we have, it comes from the mercy of God. That God is the great giver. There's no such thing as a bootstrap ethic in the Bible. In our go hustle and get after it culture, that's hard to hear often. That nobody pulls up himself by his own bootstraps without the grace of God. Everything that we have comes to us from his bounty and from his goodness, Roll says. God looks at what we trust and what we do with that which he has entrusted us, and it matters to him because it reveals the condition of our hearts to our creator. In summary, it's all grace, and we are stewards of the good things that God has given us. We might say, well, I work hard. How can you say that? There is a bootstrap ethic. If, if you don't work, you don't eat, the Bible says. Sure. But who do you think gave you that work ethic? Who do you think gave you your talents and your passions and your skills and allowed you by his grace to be born in the family you were born in and maybe even set you up for success? Don't be ashamed of that. We just say, God is so gracious. It's not me, it's him. He's the great giver. Sproul points us to a few characters in the Bible. We see the example of Job. Job in the Old Testament was a very wealthy man by ancient standards. And the story is that Satan came to God in heaven, and God said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? God called attention to Job for his integrity, for his devotion to God, for his love and affection for the Lord, and for his faithful service. Satan issued a challenge to God. Imagine having that kind of guts. Saying, does Job serve you because it's easy? Of course he serves you. Of course he says glory to God and bless the Lord and God loves us because he's so wealthy. He has everything. He has a family and property and homes and as far as the eye can see, of course he's pro-God. He's healthy. Life is good. You've given him so much stuff, of course he loves you. Of course he serves you. You've given all these possessions to him, making him one of the wealthiest men in the world. And you've put a hedge around him. So Satan basically says, let me at him. And we'll see how long he continues to be faithful to you. God says, okay, but you can't ultimately harm him. You can't kill him. But have at it. Because he's not going to budge. Sproul says this, that Satan unleashed the horror of hell upon Job, upon his family, upon his livestock, upon everything that mattered to him until Job sat moaning on a dunghill, crying out, though he slay me. You know, everything I knew was good is being taken away. I don't want it to be taken away. He's not celebrating that. He's saying, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. He goes on to point that his redeemer lives, that he is not going to compromise his faith because the things that are good things, family, health, possessions, none of those are ultimate things compared to God. They're good things, but they're not God things for Job. He did not trust in his wealth. He trusted in his redeemer to the day that God eventually would vindicate him. We see the New Testament, a character you might not be very familiar of, with the example of Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph of Arimathea in the New Testament was kind of an obscure person, only referenced briefly in the New Testament, really very briefly in the Gospels, and he's now very famous in the Christian story. He gets mentioned often around Easter season for what he actually did with his wealth. 
He donated an expensive tomb. And to own a tomb like that in the Bible, I mean, you were like straight cash homie. Like you had serious resources. He donated, that's an old Randy Moss quote there. He donated an expensive tomb for the burial of Jesus after his death on the cross. And now he's remembered in the Bible, not as this random rich guy. He's remembered not for what he had, even though he had a lot. He's remembered for what he gave for the Lord and to the Lord for the glory of God. That's what he's remembered for. And we're saying his name today, a couple thousand years later, not because of what he had, because of what he gave. We really need to pay attention to what Jesus says about those who have wealth and understand that in our first world, he's actually talking to us. He's actually talking to us. So if you were able to drive here today, turn on a TV last night, have three meals a day and snacks whenever you want them. You're counted in the wealthy. We're the richest people in the history of the world. In the history of the world. Like the poorest person here, and I don't want to make light of anyone's situation, but the, poor, the poorest person here this morning has a better standard of living than many people around the world. So we don't feel guilty about that. We're just aware of that. We're conscious of that. Our posture is gratitude because of what God has blessed us with. Jesus says in the scriptures, show me your bank account. Like, go online and, and show me your account. Pull up your banking app, and I'll tell you where your heart is. Like, I'll tell you what is the most important thing to you. And the disciples are blown away by his statement. And again, they ask the question, then, then who can be saved and this guy came up to you and asked what good things he has to do in order to inherit the kingdom of God. He was seeking you out, and he went away sorrowful. So who in the world can be saved? And Jesus says, with men, it ain't happening. That's our salvation in general. If salvation belonged to us, it would never happen because we can't forgive ourselves for the sins we've committed. God must forgive them. Because he will not let sin go unpunished. That's why we call the gospel good news. They're rather punishing us in our, as our sins deserve. Jesus was punished in our place. With man, it's not happening. And how many people who are rich by the standards of this world are in the kingdom of God today? Look around the room, and it's everyone in this building that claims the name of Jesus Christ. Why? Because with man, it is impossible. We'll choose our stuff, we'll choose our comfort, We'll choose our preferences all day long instead of the kingdom of God. But God in his grace opened our hearts, opened our minds, radically changed us and saved us for his glory. Humanly speaking, it's impossible, impossible for the person who trusts in their wealth to get into the kingdom of God. With God, he says, all things are possible. How, it's how interesting we use the verse, all things are possible, for us to make more money rather than to thank the God who is the great giver we can actually scripturally do both of those things and do them in a way that honors God. Because it's possible to receive blessings of great wealth. And I gave you two examples in the Bible, Job, Joseph, Arimathea, we could say a third in Abraham. It's possible to receive great blessings of wealth from God and still have our hearts focused on the kingdom of God. Through God that actually is possible, Jesus says it's just very difficult. And it may be very difficult for a lot of us. But this is where the Holy Spirit intervenes in the lives of people, and it cuts through the hardness of our hearts. And what does he do? He changes our hearts, and he opens up our hands. 
Our hands won't open up to the things of God. Our hands will only open up to things that make us feel bad. We'll be generous towards things that maybe just give us a tax break or get our name on something or get our business out there. Just kind of a marketing and promo idea. Like our hands will open to those things. But the scriptures in 2 Corinthians 9, God says he loves a cheerful giver. Think about that. God says he loves people, but very few things get the the title of God saying he loves them that are stuff. God loves what we do with the gifts he's given us. He loves a cheerful giver. So you ask the question, what is it that God loves? He loves us. He loves generosity because he cares about our hearts. He does not need a dime for us, from us. He doesn't need city church. He doesn't need me as the pastor. He doesn't need you as one of his followers. But in his grace, he has allowed us to be part of his family and his kingdom, and he uses resources that we have in open hands to make sure our hearts are dependent upon him and for him rather than simply for ourselves. So what does it look like? I said just a minute ago that it's possible to receive blessings from God of great wealth. And again, we're not comparing ourselves to the Fortune 500 you know, CEO. We're comparing ourselves to the fact that the rest of the world, we are some of the richest people who have ever lived. It's important that you don't get in the mindset that nobody thinks they're rich. But again, I get really annoyed and frustrated when I see Christians online bemoaning people who have money. The 1% this, the 1% that, that's also not a good posture. Again, God blesses people in different ways, and he has blessed you tremendously, whether you realize it or not, ultimately found in Christ. So how do we be faithful? How do we make sure that we are people who maybe are providing for our families, who are saving for the future, who are maybe you're investing wisely, maybe you're just trying to pay the bills every month, like whatever it is, how do we make sure we're doing those things and are found faithful before God? I think there's four things. And I thought through these for a while, and I believe these are kind of the four things for all of us. The first is to have the right mindset to have the right mindset. I'm not talking about finances here. I'm not talking about investing or being a guru or anything like that. We need those people in the kingdom of God. Thank God for Christian bankers and finance gurus and all those kind of things. We need you. I'm talking about how we view what money can do to us. The first is to have the right mindset. In other words, we live with generosity in response to Jesus's generosity to us. And for the Christian, that has to be understood spiritually first before financially. Spiritually, in the gospel of Jesus. What he has done for us, God's been so generous to us in giving us life and giving us salvation and giving us forgiveness of sins, heaven when we die, life with God, adoption to God's family. God, you've been so generous to us, so you can't ask too much of me. You loved me while I was a sinner and made me whole and made me new. That's our mindset. See, church offerings aren't meant to be a tax for church members. That's the wrong mindset. If you've ever felt that way from a church you grew up in, then I apologize to them on their behalf. They're meant to be an overflow of gratitude of God's grace to us in his son, Jesus Christ, who we're told became poor spiritually, well, I should say humanly, excuse me, so that we might become rich. He lowered himself, the scriptures tell us, so we may have abundance in him spiritually and in our salvation. So when you have that kind of mindset, then talking about money at church is not threatening. It's not a bad Sunday. It's not a, oh no, I brought a friend. Jesus talks about this over and over again because he knows what it can do to our hearts and he wants us to have the mindset that he's been so generous to us in our salvation that there's nothing too much now to ask of us. And the second thing is an awareness. Just awareness of our hearts. 
and what possessions and money can do to us. It causes a lot of anxiety. That's at the core. It goes down to our heart. I don't mean a clinical anxiety that needs treatment or counseling or professional help. I'm talking about just the angst in us that's always worried when we go to bed at night about having more. Do I have enough? How do I get more? It also creates bitterness in a lot of people. Rather than just being thankful for God's grace in someone else's life and maybe in a way that just kind of played out in a blessing sort of way, different than yours, the bitterness comes into our hearts and it can just really mess us up. I mean, how many families don't speak to each other because of money? Divorces that have happened because of money? When somebody dies, the inheritance gets passed down, families divide. Like, and, and also how many people just live for it? They live for money and it, you hear something happen, like what happened to that person? Like they've changed a lot. Like, what do you think happened? And a lot of times the answer is, well, they got more money. Like, if money has changed you, I don't mean change your house or change your vacation plans or your retirement fund. I'm not talking about that. But if money has changed you as a person, someone who claims faith in Jesus Christ and following him, you have to do some deep examining of your heart and say, like, what has happened to me? Like, what has happened to me? We have to have an awareness if we're anxious, if it has our loyalty, if we're bitter towards others, we have to be, make sure, we have to regularly examine our hearts as the scriptures say. The third thing is prevention. How do I prevent myself from being greedy? How do I prevent myself from having money as an idol in my life? And the answer is not stop earning. The answer is not make less. This is not pastor talking who cares what I think. The scriptures would tell us to give more. Like, that's how God opens up our hearts, is we become more generous people, that we live our lives, not irresponsibly, not foolishly. There's so much in this Bible about, about wisdom, about stewardship, but the mindset is that we are stewards of what God has given us, that he's the one who actually owns everything. None of it actually belongs to me, so when I think it belongs to me, then there's a lordship problem, where I become a lowercase g God, rather than the actual God of the universe being the one that I submit my life to. So the prevention that God gives us is not some seven-step financial program. The prevention that he gives us in the scriptures is that we be generous. It's kind, of, it's kind of like if you hold a bird in your hands. If you hold it too tight, you're probably going to kill the bird. Sorry for the image. But if you open it like this, the bird's going to fly away. So we're not foolish. We're not just like going into debt and just giving money we don't have, and, and all those type of things. But at the same time, we don't live our lives like this either. Because it's going to crush our souls. It's going to make money our master. And possessions our gods. We live an open-handed life in wisdom. That's how we prevent these things. And also, Keller talks about this, and I'm just like, man, I don't even know where to start here because we've become just so sensitive towards it. And he was in New York City with like very wealthy congregation and successful people and entrepreneurs and very ambitious people in New York, and he said, do you have people in your life that are good enough friends, and we've really kind of lost friendship in our culture, like true friendship, that can ask you questions about what you do with your money? And I'm like, good luck with that. I don't mean someone doesn't know you, I don't mean like some kind of weird, like cultic kind of thing, but I mean just a friend. And it's in your life, it's a Christian trusted friend that's able to say to you things like, hey man, I'm, I'm seeing what's happened to you since you've I think it's really great you got this promotion that you got, you know, had this success that you sold that real estate. That's really cool. But I've just kind of seen something in you 
since then, it just kind of worries me a little bit. You know, I've just kind of seen you change some. And like, do you have that person in your life? Because what happens is when usually you hang out with people, they're in the same bracket that you're in. And everybody just kind of fuels whatever stage that is together. And no one ever asks difficult or tough questions about what Jesus says is the most fundamental thing for our hearts. If there was a drunkenness issue and it was affecting your family, I'm guessing somebody in your life would have that conversation with you. Right? If there's like some really marriage issues, the way you were speaking to your wife, or maybe your extracurriculars that were going on that they knew about, or you know, like that, you know, going to going to Bonefish for Bang Bang Shrimp on Wednesday night a little too often by yourself, you know, that kind of thing. And and, and you know, so they would say, well, Hurricane Girl close, so you gotta go somewhere again now. So that's just kind of how it works. So but people would say, hey, like, just as your friend who loves you, like, what's going on? Like, I'm, a little, I'm just a little concerned, but no one ever says that about stuff. When Jesus says that's the thing that grabs our hearts the most, so maybe we just need to figure out how to do friendship well in this area, how to have conversations in this area. And again, I don't even know where to start with that. I'm not trying to leave it open-ended, but maybe for one person in this room even, you can have someone in your life that you ask, hey, man, just kind of keep me in check about things. Like, things are going really well right now for me, and I just want to make sure I'm in check. Like, just make sure that I'm, that I'm not changing you know, that I'm being a generous person, that money's not mastering me. And the fourth thing is that I know my place and my part. Our place, our part. Here's what Paul wrote to Timothy for the church. He said in chapter six, instruct those who are rich in the present age, which again I said is all of us comparatively, not to be arrogant. Can we check our hearts, the mindset, or to set their hope? That's the issue. Where is my hope? Where is my trust? On the uncertainty of wealth. We want to set our hearts on things that are eternal, he says, but on God, who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. Isn't that awesome? That there's common grace there. God gives us things to enjoy and to live our lives and to enjoy the things of this world. He says, be careful. And he says, instruct. There's a teaching here. Second time he uses that word. Instruct them to do what is good. God wants us to respond to his grace by doing good works, to be rich in good works. That's how he wants us to be rich, and he wants us to be wealthy in good works, to be generous. That's what it looks like. And willing to share. Storing up treasures for themselves is a good foundation for the coming age. That you're investing in kingdom things in your life. So that may, listen to this sentence right here. I want this to be me. So they may take hold of what is truly life. Don't you want to truly live life? Like, what a sentence. God wants us to take hold of what is life. And the way he's defining that in this context is good works that aren't dependent on the things of this world that are grateful to God for how he blesses us and one that is in good works, generous to the things of God and investing in the things of eternity. That takes a mindset, it takes an awareness, it takes some prevention about what our hearts do, and also realizes our place and our part. There's a, a gospel out there called, the, it's not a gospel at all, but it's called the prosperity gospel, that if you, you give more money and do these things, then God will materially bless you more. Maybe you've seen it before on TV or a book in a bookstore where it just kind of, gives you this idea that if you're sick ever, like you have a diagnosis that's serious, it's a faith issue, like not a health issue, uh, you know that if you don't give money, then you're never gonna have the house you've always wanted. Just know those things are lies in the scriptures. 
uh, that we see Jesus as the suffering servant. Uh, we see his people oftentimes that lost their jobs to go and follow Christ, that lost their livelihood to go and follow Jesus. So just know that those things are all guilt-driven. They're wrong motive-driven. Uh, there's a side agenda for those things. And if that's ever makes you, maybe that's what makes, when I say the tension today, is how we think about money. And I just want to be sensitive to the fact there's some people that went, oh my gosh, and like rolled your eyes, like wanted to leave. Or like, you'd rather have me talk about transgenderism again or something. You know, like that's less controversial for you or less angsty even. And, and I just want to say that I hear and understand and get all those things and it makes me annoyed and mad too. So that's why instead of that, we go to the scriptures and say, what does God say about these things? And what he's telling us is we don't do anything to earn his blessing, that by his grace he gives us his blessing, and the ultimate blessing we have is Jesus. Like he is the greatest treasure, that Christ is the greatest possession that we have, that we have been given life with Jesus, and that is the greatest thing we can possibly own. And now because of that, now he says, okay, if you're gonna live a faithful Christian life, be careful of your heart, because the thing that's gonna draw you away the most from the things of God is having confidence in your stuff, confidence in your possessions, confidence in your money. And he's saying, Jesus doesn't want you to serve two masters. One, he cares for his own glory and he's jealous and zealous for it. But also he cares about you. And he cares about your heart. So we could say the answer is not do you have money, but does money have you? The answer is in that form of a question. Like, do I have money, or does money have a hold of me? The prosperity gospel, I think money has a hold of you because it drives everything they do. But actually following Jesus into this world, the question is, God, just search my heart regularly. Help me to see who you are every day, the grace you've given us, the blessing of Jesus. And if I believe Jesus is my greatest treasure, then I can actually live an open-handed life for Christ. So what's the tension that money's kind of neutral in the Bible. It's not money that's the problem. It's what money can do to us that's the problem. So the same Jesus who told us that it's harder for a camel to enter the eye of the needle is the same God who says that God loves a generous giver. He's the same God who allowed Job to have abundant blessings to be used for God's glory. It's not money that's the problem. It's what money can do to our hearts and to our lives and to our families and to our mindset. That's the problem. So let's be people who are aware of that regularly, not because we're paranoid, because we know how our hearts can drift and say, God, let me have the right mindset. Let me prevent becoming a greedy person. Let me not live for money. Let me use the gifts you have given me for your glory, for your mission ammunition to fund the gospel to the ends of the earth and for the glory of your name. So let's be wise. Let's be intentional. Let's be a generous people as we guard our hearts regularly. There is a tension there in a world that says more, 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 more. It's okay to have more. But what are you doing with that more? That's the question. And more than, even more than that, what's it doing to you? Let's be careful, let's be wise, let's be intentional, but also let's, let's celebrate and give glory to God for the good news of Jesus being taken from this church through our city to the end of the world. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are thankful that you give us true guidance in the scriptures and that you care about our hearts. How amazing that the creator of the universe knows us by name and cares about what's going on inside of us. 
it's just amazing for me to even to grasp. I hope I never take that for granted or never lose the wonder of that reality that you care about our hearts, care about our minds, care about our souls. And let us never be the, the young man in the story, the rich young ruler as he is called, who you offered a chance to follow you but knew that there were things getting in the way of that. And he said no and walked away because those things mattered to him more than you. I ask that will never be true of us. Let us be Joseph of Arimathea people. Let us be Job people where our trust in you is not dependent on the things that we have, but dependent on who you are and ultimately what you've given us in our redemption. So I ask that we really will believe together that Jesus is the greatest treasure, that our salvation is the greatest gift, and that any dollar we have, any investment we have, any bill we can pay, any house we live in, all ultimately belongs to you. The one who owns cattle, the scripture says, on many hills. There's nothing that we had that we didn't receive. From work ethic, to family dynamics, to where we were born, to what opportunities we were given, to intellect, all is grace and all is from you. Let's have that mindset as we go about this day, the rest of this week, and try to live our lives in this tension of how to think about something like money. Thankful for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and sing some good news.